Well, at bedtime, Lily Holcomb told her two sons a Bible story and then asked if either one knew what the word sin meant. Seven-year-old Keith spoke up and said, I know, it's when you do something bad. Aaron, the five-year-old, got really big eyes. He said, I know a big sin that Keith did today. Annoyed, Keith turns to his little brother and says, Aaron, you take care of your sins and I'll take care of mine. So in today's message, I'm so sinful, but you are so forgiving, we're going to discover what God in His mercy actually does with the sins of His children. Now this morning we're continuing our sermon series titled Life in the Psalms. Our hope is that uh, we would tap into the beauty and the power of the Psalms for everyday living. You know, we're in a a long line of believers who for the last 3,000 years have read and sung and worshipped and connected with God through these inspired poems and songs. In the Psalms, God's people from every age and in every culture begin to see a pretty fair picture of ourselves, don't we? Our struggles, our sins, our sorrows, and at the same time, our aspirations, our hopes, our joys, our victories. And it's against this backdrop that we see and experience God more clearly and more powerfully. He's revealed as transcendent, other than we are, majestic and powerful and faithful and good and trustworthy and loving. And we're encouraging you in the the course of the next months to actually commit to read and pray through the entire Psalter, all 150 of them. And as we do... Uh, we, we think that you'll be drawn to praise and thank God. You'll be, you'll be prompted to rejoice and to sing and to shout and clap and lift your hands or, or kneel and bow down and fall prostrate before the Lord in worship because we're, we're convinced that the Psalms are for real and they are for real life. So let's pray together. Lord, we pause at the, the start of this brand new day and we we do lift our hearts and, and rejoice as we've already sung because you are good and you are faithful. And we, we praise you, Lord, for life and breath that enables us to gather together. We thank you for the beauty and power of a brand new day, the start of a brand new week. We celebrate the gifts of life and love that you've given. We bless your name for the fullness of life that comes through Christ, his death and resurrection. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the the down payment that everything you promise is actually going to happen. We thank you for favor and blessing. We thank you for our security against an uncertain future in Jesus. Thank you for this time that we share together today. Lord, we, we're mindful of this weekend uh, and that the freedoms that we enjoy even today have come at, at, at the great sacrifice of many who have served in our armed forces in history, in our, in our family, in our lineage, and, our, and those uh, friends and neighbors that we know. And, and Lord, we pause to say thank you for their lives and their sacrifice and their service that in many ways enable us w- without restraint to gather this morning to express our faith. So thank you. We welcome you here. Put power on your word to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many different kinds of psalms, scholars, Theologians have identified a number of genres by which to classify them. Some are historical, they tell a story. Others are messianic, they foretell the person and work of the Messiah. The imprecatory psalms 
implore God for vindication against one's enemies. And frankly, no one knows quite what to do with these psalms because you read them and they say like, break their neck, smash their jaw, destroy them. May they blow away like chaff in the wind. And you think, whoa, what do you do with those? Well, we don't know. Songs of ascent were recited and sung as the pilgrims in uh, Israel uh, went to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three major feasts. And some are alphabetic. Now, it's difficult to tell in English, but they employ some arrangement based on the Hebrew alphabet or even start the stanzas with an acrostic. You can't tell that when you read your English versions, but they're actually very beautiful and very powerfully constructed. And still others are songs of penitence. That is, they breathe deep sorrow for sins committed, and such is one that we'll read today in Psalm 32. If you have your Bible, you might want to open there. You can follow along on the on the screen. And if you'd like a Bible in a language you can actually understand, it's our gift to you. You can slip out right back there on the table in Guest Central. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background. You see, when Tina and I attended the excellent musical Wicked at the Peoria Civic Center last fall, we received a copy of the program upon entering the theater. And in its opening pages, you read the background of the story of the Witches of Oz in order to better understand what's going on between uh, Alphaba and Galinda. Now, while certainly uh, the play would have been enjoyable uh, without this knowledge, the storyline makes much greater sense thanks to the program's background notes when you, when you understand that it's a prequel of sorts, it's actually preparing for Dorothy's arrival in the land of Oz. Now, in similar fashion, uh, in order to better understand Psalm 32 that we're preparing to read, it's helpful to know that the backdrop of this song is perhaps one of the most notable combinations of sin recorded in the entire Bible in the text in 2 Samuel 11 to 12. The storyline is this. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then arranged for her husband Uriah's murder in battle against the Ammonites. David then took Bathsheba into the palace as one of his many wives where she had their baby boy. It was about a year later that the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to rebuke David for his sin, to inform him that his household would later rebel and that their son would die, which he did in just seven days. Now, most presumably, the psalm that we're preparing to read was composed after Nathan's visit, and David is convicted, expresses regret and repentance, and the child died. So let's now read together in Psalm 32. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I'll confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time. 
that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey Him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Now David begins this song with a high note of praise and and thanksgiving and joy that's rooted in God's forgiveness. You catch that in verse 1? Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins put out of sight. What joy for those whose record the Lord's cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Now, he uses here a very distinctive feature in Hebrew poetry. You're going to want to get this. It's called synonymous parallelism. And I only know that because I read it in a book, you know, not because I'm a scholar or Hebrew or, or either. It's just a, you'll see this pattern repeated in the Psalms frequently, lines of similar expression that taken in combination as a pair uh, create a single thought. It will happen repeatedly. You'll, you'll think that, like the psalmist is repeating themselves. And you'll notice it here in, in, in uh, verses 1 and 2. His, del- his deliberate disobedience is forgiven. His sin is put out of sight. His record has been cleared of guilt, and now he's living honestly, as opposed to living dishonestly with unconfessed sin. That's the point. So these parallelisms all communicate the joy and the blessing of having sins forgiven, particularly the two flagrant sins of uh, adultery and murder. And so if this song has kind of an overarching tone or note, it's one of uh, positive joy and great victory. Now, all people everywhere, in every culture and in every age of history, have had real needs. But our conviction is that the deepest need at the most fundamental level is the human being's need of forgiveness. Our spiritual foreparents, Adam and Eve, were created innocent, but then failed in their test before God. You see, God had forbidden them to eat the fruit of the knowledge of, uh, of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. But they were tempted by the serpent there in, in the garden to deliberately disobey, and they collapsed to that temptation, ate the fruit, and sinned. And ever since that day, everyone is now born into sin. By our nature and our actions, we are guilty before God and separated from Him. And the Apostle Paul, looking back, describes a mankind's condition this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now, if we unpack that verse a little bit, we see that everyone means everyone. We have sinned. That is, we've lived independent of what God says. We've chosen to live our own way. We fall short, the text says. That just means we don't measure up. And, and we fall short of God's glorious standard. We could say it this way. God is the measuring stick by which good is to be determined. And God is perfect in everything He does, which means that relative to His standard, none of us measure up. 
That's why it's called a glorious standard. And consequently, we are separated from God because of our sin. Now, while we would admit to doing things wrong that we know, know that aren't right, most of us probably don't think of ourselves as sinners. You know, when we compare ourselves to a thief or a drug dealer or a child molester or a crooked politician or a Ponzi schemer, you know, we say, hey, I'm pretty good. You know, I, I, I'm honest and sincere person. I work hard. I try to support my family. I do what's right most of the time. Um, I'm a decent person. I, I volunteer some of my time. I vote in the elections. I give to charity. I buy Girl Scout cookies. I keep my grass mowed. Uh, you know, I live by the golden rule. What, what would God have against me? And yet at the same time, if the curtains are closed, the shades drawn, and the lights are out, and we're honest before God, we'd all have to admit that at the deepest level, we're continually prone to think things, do things, and say stuff that we know isn't right. At the gut level, the deepest level. It's what seven-year-old Keith Holcomb said, we do things that are bad. (laughs) We're basically selfish. We want to live life on our own terms and for our own pleasure. Thank you very much. No one else telling us what to do. We carry around jealousies. We're envious of what others might have. Uh, we're, we're prejudiced against other people for any number of reasons. We want to get revenge on people who say things about us that aren't true or against uh, uh, maybe a, a boss or a supervisor or an advisor in school that, uh, uh, you know, overlooks us for our accomplishments or bypasses us for a raise or a promotion, or maybe we're just unappreciated for the work we do. We want to strangle our kids when they don't obey us the first time. Uh, we, we are just callous towards the poor or those who are marginalized in some way. Uh, we, we hide a secret addiction. We, we are crippled with a besetting sin, even though we've said to ourselves not one but a hundred times, I will never do this again, only to find ourselves doing it again. The Bible describes this, the human condition, as sinful. Now, I, un- I understand that this word is not terribly popular today. It's, uh, it's viewed as old-fashioned and quite out of step with 2012. But we all know that the inner condition of our heart and mind is not changed through sheer willpower, through gritting our teeth and determining to, to choose to do gooder tomorrow than we did today. It just doesn't work that way. You can't just turn over a new leaf and start over or even go to church and get religion. That doesn't solve the condition of the human heart. There's no way we can ever be good enough, be right enough, or obey enough to earn God's forgiveness. That's the whole point of the Old Testament law. Think Ten Commandments. The reason God gave them wasn't necessarily to guide human behavior, although it certainly was that, but it was to teach all people everywhere that we fall short of God's glorious standard. There's no way we can earn approval and acceptance and forgiveness before a great and glorious God. This this painful truth obliterates the prevalent belief system in our culture that good people go to heaven. We're going to unpack that in a sermon series at some point. How good is good enough? And who knows? Who sets the standard? If good people go to heaven, how do we ever know? Who sets the bar? 
No, the, the, the Bible clearly teaches in both Old and New Covenants that if you break the law in one point, you break the whole law and are guilty before God. What needs to happen is that we, we are desperate to experience a more basic and fundamental change in our human condition. And that's exactly what God did in sending his son, Jesus Christ. See, the good news of Christianity is that God didn't leave us helpless and in the mess that we created out of our lives. God so loves us as the Father that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to the earth. He came to the earth himself in his son and made provision whereby we could be forgiven in his kingdom. One of the most famous verses in all the Bible, John three sixteen: For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so now the good news is that we can have eternal life. We call it real life because of God the Father's great, inexhaustible, never-ending love. In his death and resurrection, Jesus uh, inaugurated the restoration of all people everywhere in connection with God because of his great love. Our relationship with God, separated from sin, is now restored through forgiving us and making us brand new. That's the fundamental change in the human condition that God chose to bring. Now, the Apostle Paul puts an interesting spin on it this way in the book of Romans when he says in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This plain and simple gospel, when we turn from sin and selfishness and turn to Jesus, at that very moment he forgives us and makes us right with God. He declares that we are righteous just as if we'd never sinned. Paul says it this way, in his letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. So in Jesus, every sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven. Penalty of sin is forgiven. The power of sin is broken in your life, and you are made new. And friends, that is the gospel. That is good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what man must do, but rather it's about what Jesus Christ already did. That's the good news. You can't add to it with your good works. You can't keep it by being good. You can't take away from it with your sin. You see, it's not good people who go to heaven. It's forgiven people who experience the kingdom. When an Old Testament Jew, like David, offered sacrifice for sin, God forgave them on the basis of the final sacrifice that would come someday in Christ. I like how uh, the Apostle Paul even references this in the next uh, verse in, in Romans 3, verse 26. Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and didn't punish those who sinned in times past, like David. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time, as in Christ. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. 
and declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. And so the good news is that when an Old Testament saint looked forward by offering a sacrifice to the sacrifice of Christ, they were forgiven. In the same way that you and I, as a New Testament saint, look back to the, 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 the sacrifice of Christ. Our identity now as a child of God is as a saint, one whose sins are not held against them. We've been forgiven. Our, our deliberate disobedience is forgiven. Our sin is put out of sight. In the language of Psalm 32, our record has been cleared of guilt. Friends, those who have trusted in Christ, you are a child of God, and nothing and no one can ever change that. Now, what happens, though, when we, like David, either intentionally or inadvertently sin after we trust Christ? Well, the Bible does indicate that after receiving new life and forgiveness in Christ, there is still a battle between what it calls the flesh, or sometimes translated the sinful nature, and the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence. Uh, we'll unpack this theologically at, at another date, but, but the point is, suffice it to say, that even after we've been cleansed and forgiven, none of us are strangers to this internal battle between light and dark, are we? Good and evil. Obedience and disobedience. The good dog, bad dog inside of us. David collapsed to this temptation. In the same way, we've all collapsed to this temptation and committed sins. Some small and seemingly insignificant. Others large and with crushing effect. Some visible, some hidden, some intentional, some through oversight and omission. We've all been in in this line. And when we collapse to sin in this way, our real enemy, the devil, immediately begins to try and exploit our weakness, doesn't he? All of us that are Christ followers have had this experience. Guilt and shame and condemnation come raging in at the accusation of the devil. Oh, you're not a Christian. How can can you call yourself a Christian? Real Christians don't do that, don't think that, don't say that. Well, you're, you're condemned to hell. You've lost your salvation. You're no longer a son or a daughter of God. I mean, look at you. And then we entertain those thoughts, and pretty soon we start to agree with him. And so almost universally, the enemy attempts to convince us that we're no longer a God's son or daughter. He attacks us at the root of uh, our identity. And guilt and condemnation and shame are his most pervasive attacks. Unless you think I'm any hero, friends, let me just tell you, I'm at the front of the line. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I regularly collapse to temptation and sin. Uh, I'm not a holy person any more than you are. You know, I just happen to have a different job description. <laughs> you know, you know. Um, I'm impatient. I'm covetous of what other people possess. I'm jealous of, of what they have. I, I worry about the future. I have fear and uncertainty because I'm unwilling or unable to trust God for his future provision. And I got a whole other long list if you want to hear them. Um, Now, I've never committed adultery and I've never murdered anyone. Uh, But in God's economy, honestly, I don't know. I don't think there's any categories, really. You break one and you're guilty of the whole. Um, Certainly, some sins have more consequences than others. 
But but in terms of like making you a, a kind of good or kind of bad sinner, irrelevant. You're guilty before God. The point is that no matter our behavior, I want you to hear that our identity is as a son or daughter of the living God. If we've trusted Jesus to forgive us, we're reconciled to God, and the strength and the authority of Scripture tells us that at this point, no longer does God count our sins against us. Let's move on, verses 3 to 5, where David's acknowledging conviction. Now, initially, David refused to acknowledge that anything was wrong. For about a year, he resumed what I call an attitude of normalcy. Life goes on. But then in a form of flashback to the story, David says, verse 3, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was upon me, heavy upon me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. The word interlude, by the way, comes from a Hebrew expression that we believe was a musical note of some kind that that indicated a pause or uh, a refrain. We don't know exactly what it was, but when you see the word sila or interlude, you just take a breath and pause. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I'll confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. So David, looking back, says that he was bearing in his soul and in his body the catastrophic consequences of his deliberate disobedience and his unconfessed sin. Now, he's still Israel's king. He's still anointed as God's chosen leader. He's still God's child, still righteous in God's eyes, still the high watermark, the golden age of Israel's history. David's at the top of the heap. But in his refusal to acknowledge his wrongdoing, his body was suffering under some kind of discipline of the Lord. He had no strength. He was obviously in some kind of pain. And so finally, after about a year of this, in exasperation, he confessed his rebellion, what he called it, to the Lord. And frankly, I think that's just what God's looking for. He wants us to acknowledge what he already knows. You see, your confession to God doesn't inform him of anything. (laughs) He already knows. He's just waiting for us to acknowledge what what he already uh, knows. That's what confession means, to agree with God, to say the same thing as God says. And so to agree with God. It's not that we lose our right standing with God when we sin and then we gain it back when we confess. We're, we're not a son, then we are. We're not a daughter, then we are. It's kind of this, this back and forth, in and out, up and down and around. And one day you're saved and one day you're not. One day you're righteous and one day you're not. No, you're always righteous, but you're tainted with sin and it's going to have consequences. And God's waiting for us in humility and surrender to come into agreement with him. That's what confession is. It's a a rather simple act of humility and surrender where we come into agreement with God. And we might say something like this, God, you're right. I've chosen really poorly and really sinfully. My behavior is out of line. It's unbecoming of a follower of yours. I'm so sinful and broken, but you are so forgiving and merciful. Would you please cleanse and restore me in your name? That's what he's waiting for. And it's just that simple. It's precisely what Jesus had in mind when he taught us the Our Father prayer in Matthew 6. When Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us today the food we need and forgive us today, implied, our debts or our sin as we forgive others. You see, we're already cleansed. We're righteous. We're his son or his daughter. But we need to wash our feet, as it were. We're already clean, but we need to be cleansed with the part of us that touches the earth. Jesus has made provision for his children, children who are already forgiven. He's made provision whereby us as his children can receive the cleansing we need from daily sin. That's why he put it in the Our Father. Forgive us today our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Sin is not your identity. Your identity is as a son or a daughter of the living God, created now righteous and holy, one person against whose uh, God is not holding your sins. But we do get soiled by sin, don't we? And, and we just need to agree with what God says about it. Come clean through confession and receiving his forgiveness. And we do that every day. Give us each day the, the bread we need. Forgive us each day our debts. It's interesting to think, how does God look at David? Well, it's interesting that the New Testament record of all things that, that God could have recorded about David is that he's a man after God's heart. You see, you're not what you've been forgiven for. You are a son or a daughter of the living God. You're not what you've been forgiven for. The Bible declares that he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, verse 12. He throws them into the sea of forgetfulness, Micah Seven nineteen. He does not remember them anymore, Jeremiah thirty one thirty four. And that just starts with confession. Perhaps in just a few minutes as we begin to connect with God through worship. Perhaps at the end of our service where you can come forward and just get the slate clean. Perhaps this week over a cup of coffee with a friend or a, uh, a good coworker, uh, someone in your small group in a week or so. One person said it this way, in God's mind, in God's kingdom, we're only as sick as the secrets we keep from one another. That's where the enemy holds power over us when we have unconfessed sin in our life. Verses 6 to 7, the the psalmist encourages us to embrace God's protection. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there's still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment, for you're my hiding place. You protect me from from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. Let me ask you a couple questions. Why is it that when we sin, we're prone to run away from God and His people? Why do we stop praying? Why do we not go to small group and connect with people that God loves and trusts? Why do we get spotty in our participation in public worship? Why why do we shrink back from reading the Bible and maintaining the means of grace that keep us connected to God? Well, I've got a few ideas. Maybe it's because of what we really believe about God or what we imagine he might think about us. And frankly, religion has done a, a terrible disservice in teaching us that God's always angry and ready to judge us, standing at the top of the celestial stairs, ready to stop sitting down there, you know, or whatever. And so, and it might also be because we have a tendency to, to misunderstand certain passages of the Bible. Uh, no, no criticism of the people who, who teach them this way, but, you know, we read Hebrews 6, 4, that's impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, and we're convinced that must be us. Or 1 John 5, 16, there is a sin that leads to death. Yep, that's the one I've committed. Neither of which text 
has anything to do with what I've just described, if, if you actually look at them honestly. God is a loving Father who wants to help us. Verse 6 in the psalm tells us his ears are open to our prayers. He wants our head above water. He's our hiding place, verse 7. He wants to assist us in time of trouble. He wants to surround us with victory. That's God's heart when we're stuck in unconfessed sin. I like to think of it this way. To be human and a Christ follower is to collapse to temptation and and to err and to make mistakes, to not follow through on our commitments, to say and do and think things we know to be wrong. But to be human and be a Christ follower is also to run to God and regularly ask for His forgiveness and to experience His restoration and His cleansing. That's what it means. Verses 8 to 10, listen to God's direction. Very often, we, we lose our bearings when we sin, don't we? You know, we don't think straight, we, we end up getting confused, we, we deceive ourselves, or we believe the enemy's lies about us, uh, our, our nature, and our character, our identity. We, we make poor decisions on top of other poor ones. We lie and deny and color our communication. We paint and perfume our life in a way that's just not real. We live in dishonesty, verses 1 and 2. Uh, we find ourselves in a place we never imagined. Have, have you ever been there? You kind of think, how in the world did I get here? And how did I let this happen? But if we follow David's example, and we come clean, and we confess our sin, and in that place then of restored relationship with God, we're cleansed and forgiven of our sin, and and it's in that place that God then makes us an offer of one of the most beautiful and powerful promises in the entire book of Psalms. The Lord says, verse 8, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you, and I will watch over you. Don't be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit or a bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows are going to come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. God's mercy comes to the humble and repentant in this powerful, beautiful promise that God will lead us and guide us in making our way forward once again, out of the confusion, out of the having lost our bearing when we sin. And as you, know, you notice that in the text, it's not just like we're going to kind of barely get along. He says he's going to lead us on the best pathway for our life. We won't need to be jerked around like a horse or a mule. Won't need to be upbraided, slapped across the side of the head, you stupid slug. No, God's going to guide us along the best pathway for our life. He's going to surround us with not just love, but unfailing love. It can't fail. That's the kind of love that God wants to surround you with today, right here, right now, for the rest of your life. His unfailing love will surround us and keep us and sustain us. And friends, I believe that's one of the the most beautiful and powerful promises of the entire book of Psalms. Well, we reach the conclusion in verse 11. David concludes this powerful song with like an exclamation point at the end of a sentence for emphasis. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey Him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. When God moves in and our lives are cleansed and restored and our relationship with Him is is clean, 
The only fitting response is to join with David and to praise and worship God. He could have let us languish, but he doesn't. He, he says, now you can shout. So we're just giving you permission today to shout it out. That's an appropriate, fitting, biblical response to the goodness of God and the power of his work in our life. And that's what we're going to do right now. Lord, we're just so grateful that you didn't leave us in the scrap heap of sin, but you took initiative to come and rescue us. And even though we deserve punishment, uh, nevertheless, you you came and sent your son to die and restore us. And, and now, Lord, you say that you don't hold our sins against us. What a powerful good news. We thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I, I pray that even today we could experience your inexhaustible and never-ending unfailing love today. You'd surround and fill us in that way. And Lord, as we offer our, our gifts to you in the offering, as we offer our lives to you in worship, we pray that you'd take these for what they are, tokens that we really want our life to, to mean something to you, to count for you. And so we offer them up with thankfulness and humility in your name. Amen.